0: All righty. Hello, Pine Baron. Welcome to the Carousel Podcast. Um, you are here to talk about financial things, as well as marketing, as well as propaganda. Um, I just want, for those who are not familiar with you, you're a pretty big, pretty well-known Twitter account uh, called Pine Baron. I believe it's at Pine Baron, right? It's
1: <laughs> at Spirit of Pines. I keep offering the guy who owns at pine Baron money and he won't respond to me but it's an account that's been dead for like six years that's
0: so annoying when that happens um yeah. i uh yeah so i used to work for Urbit and uh, i actually do still kind of work for Urbit. and um they it was the same thing they needed their Urbit. Twitter handle and some guy in Spain had it and he refused to relinquish it. And I emailed him like 7,000 times and he finally, he finally, I was, I thought he was going to ask for like 60 grand. He finally was just like, look, man, I, you just take it. Nice. <laughs> he, he didn't even charge anything. He just, for some reason, was clinging onto it. So maybe you just need to send another thousand emails. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't, I don't, all right. Maybe I'll ask you about this after the show because I don't even know how to get, any info about the guy, just his DMs are turned off. I just keep tweeting at him.
0: <laughs> yeah, I found the guy eventually on LinkedIn and just okay, hammered his nice. legs in. And yeah, and I was like, look, look, man, from one, he's like a business guy. I was like, from one business guy to another, just like, and and finally he he gave up. Um. Anyway, okay. So we are here to talk about the recent news involving what is being called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. This is the tax... I are ramping up the IRS thing, and also everything around the recession. The propaganda saying we're not in a recession. The editing of the Wikipedia article. Um, but before we get into that, let's talk a little about about who Pine Baron is. You are a self made billionaire who was a financial marketer in direct response marketing. You still do some client work, but you're currently building an investment research brand and content website called Wealth Pin so um yeah give us a little intro of, of your background how'd you make a million bucks and uh, why are you the pine Baron?
1: yeah well that's a that's a great introduction um and thanks for having me on isaac i think you're you know a very sharp writer and a very sharp uh mind about <clears throat> marketing current events so appreciate it i want to give you show you a little love too um and yeah you, you summed it up well i um I, part of my story that's interesting and I try and share is that I come from a pretty non-traditional background. Uh, I don't even have a bachelor's degree. I struggled something fierce in my young 20s, um, but eventually talked my way into the uh, white collar world of investment research. I got in on the sales and marketing side um, and I did pretty well with that. Um, and then um, yeah went from an employee to doing work as a consultant and now with my business partner we're kind of uh, working on getting our own brand going. Awesome. So what is this brand? What is Wealth Pin? Yeah, well, I'm you know, I'm pretty there's a great line. I I wish I could remember where I first heard it, but it's one of those clichés that floats around and it, the the line is basically don't don't ever start a business unless people are begging you for it. <laughs> so i was doing you know marketing and sales for for various investment products and services for other people and i was just taken to twitter as a place to vent um and of course i ended up writing about my work and my interests which which is investing wealth creation and kind of accidentally caused some traction on twitter and people were asking me for longer form stuff and and podcast interviews like this so so it wasn't until I saw there was like some actual demand for for my content um, that were like uh, me and my business partner uh, were like, well, we you know we've we've done a really good job promoting other people's ideas about investing, but uh, it seems like there's some interest in our own ideas. And uh, he he has some social media presence too. He's uh, he's younger and more in some ways more like Zoomer, charismatic than me. So he's actually a little more the face of the brand, but yeah. So it started very organically like that, just kind of putting stuff out there, seeing there was a response for it, and like, well, let's uh, you know we've done this for so long for other people, let's uh, let's put our own investing ideas and education out there and see how it goes.
0: Right. Yeah. You sent me a TikTok. His name is what? What's the TikTok again? So the all, all the social media is under our wealth pin brand. Uh, his Alex Reed. Okay, Alex and, Reed. Uh, right? Yeah, you sent me a TikTok of his, and we can. Yeah, and I
1: kind of want your advice
0: about yeah. like you know I'm I'm not that old, but boy do
1: I feel old when I go on TikTok. So.
0: <laughs> so I'll, t- I'll teach you the key to TikTok. I was taught TikTok because we were doing it for some clients. I actually did a job for TikTok itself, and it's funny because I did this job for TikTok. I produced like 20 videos for them, like 20 little mini ads. Nice. And they sucked because I had no idea, I didn't even use TikTok at the time. And I used this guy who's kind of like a guy from Dancing with the Stars to make these things. And uh, later I got totally addicted to TikTok and like fell in love with TikTok. And I really wish I could go back and remake these ads because now I totally get it. Um, I learned TikTok through a Zoomer employee of mine or somebody I used to hire to do jobs. And she really just taught me the ropes, like how you do it. And once you get, once you get it, like you really do know how to use the algorithm to your benefit, and it's kind of a feeling. It's kind of something you have to like feel out. But to to put it really simply, you need a trending sound. So a trending sound is either a song, or a lot of times it's a, a voiceover sound of a trend that people are making fun of or they're quoting. Right or it's one of these sounds like monkeys spinning monkeys that is used for a certain type of video. Like, so the video you sent me is newsy, right? So there's certain sounds out there that as you use TikTok, you'll see more and more that are used for newsy content. And once you get those trending sounds and you put your news over them, they'll automatically get like 10 times more hits. Cause people just know that that sound is used for news, right? and all, all the better if you can find like a new one that is kind of like uh, launching, but monkeys, spinning monkeys is a good one. But that's just used for everything. That's kind of like tongue in cheek, newsy, funny type of stuff. That's one thing. The other thing that I noticed from your post is um, I think just hitting them. Do you, there, I don't know if you've seen it on TikTok. There's this whole species of content where it's like, you can't really tell what's going on, but there's some sort of suspenseful music or you know, some kind of like caption that says, I can't believe this, or you know, craziest day of my life or something. And half of them will just be fake. More than half of them will ju- it'll just be fake. Those do a really, really good job of building tension from the first frame. So I think that that's kind of like, the people who do news really, really well on there, they learn how to, Create this kind of question just in the very first frame. So I think that those are two uh, pieces of advice I would give about TikTok.
1: Yeah, it's good advice. I don't want to get too inside baseball, so yeah, (laughs) we'll have to talk more after the podcast. But yeah, sorry, sorry. No, no, no. I don't look. Hey, man, it's your it's your pod, but I, I love it. Yeah, I I don't know as much about the like tapping into the literal trending pieces of media yeah yeah no i mean to your second point and we're still kind of trying to figure out the rhythms of of TikTok. but you know in certainly in financial marketing you know we use the terminology of like you know open loops like you always want to open a loop with a marketing piece
0: yeah uh yep.
1: and then yeah that creates tension and then they have to stay engaged with the marketing to close that loop oh, so i yeah. think it's yeah the, the same idea you were getting at but yeah that's how i think of it is you want to open loops, uh, pattern interrupts, you know, things that are visually or, you know, conceptually striking to, to get their attention in a crowded media landscape.
0: Right. Um, pattern then, interrupting. Yeah. <laughs> so are these so, things that you learned, are, are you applying what you, you know, made, did very well in, which is direct response, financial marketing, are you, are you applying all of those things to drive people to your own wealth pin community? And and is that the same CTA as the prior work you were doing? Or is it a little bit different to try and get people to like subscribe to a content site?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So when I started on Twitter, I wasn't deliberately doing anything. You know, I was just trying to have a place to vent um and then but you know having done this type of marketing for so long it's just sort of subconsciously yeah use you know attention getting uh uh posts and you know try to kind of like you said with tiktok same conceptually is <clears throat> yeah you got to seize people's attention you got to create some kind of ten- like when you post a twitter thread you gotta you know create some kind of tension some kind of unresolved notion to, to keep them hooked. Um, so I wasn't doing it deliberately, but I think it's kind of, uh, you know, crept through. Um, the funny thing is too, is, uh, being having done advertising in such a highly regulated space, I'm actually very careful with what I write. I think probably only fellow marketers would realize that, but even when I say something that might seem outrageous, like I can always back it up with hard evidence, so and that's just been beaten into me by uh, you know having to <laughs> go through constant compliance reviews. Um, yeah. But I think it's a positive in general. Um, so <clears throat> yeah, I, I was kind of doing it just intuitively. Um, right now, our call to action is just to get attention to our stuff to to provide good content. So um, it's a little different than you know these companies with well-established products where we're selling the products. Right now we're just kind of selling people like, Hey, you know, follow us on social media, join, check out our website, join our email newsletter. Um, But I, you know, it is very similar. And I think the best marketers, you know, I think there's this false notion that um, of kind of like, all right, well, if you're not actually making a sale, it's a soft pitch. But I think the best marketers realize that actually, no, you know, even if you're just trying to get someone on an email newsletter, be just as ruthless, just as aggressive as if you were trying to make a sale. And those
0: people tend to be more, uh, more successful. Mm, Interesting. So yeah, that's like the marketing funnel. uh, Yeah. A little bit. Right. So this, that's a big part of my whole, I do this like kind of song and dance workshop thing with my new clients. And my clients are generally brands who want branding work and then writing work. Um. So like brand strategy and then like the resulting content and things like that. So like manifestos. And I walked them through this whole kind of explanation of the creative process from a marketer. But a big part of that is the funnel. So did you get your whole, did you learn all about the funnel, which I believe was actually, I I think the sales funnel was developed by McKinsey or something like 30, 40 years ago or something where it's like awareness, consideration, preference, conversion, and then now, um, uh, what do they call it? It's like, uh, uh, um, uh, like rooting for the brand, like posting about the brand itself. I can't remember the name, but, uh, anyway. So yeah. Did you ever hear about the funnel?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I as a contrarian, I I refuse to give McKinsey credit for it. I'm right.
0: Sure, it's advocacy. Sorry, advocacy yeah. is the end of it. <clears throat> I'm sure it's
1: existed in in many forms. You know, coined by many people. I'm like, good for McKinsey. Those guys are super rich. They they don't care about what I say. <laughs> yeah, no,
0: fuck McKinsey
1: for sure. Right? Um, I mean, I don't fuck them through and through. Yeah, I mean, in direct marketing. It's it's a little more literal. It's it's not as conceptual. It's just like. Literally, you know, get people to follow you on social media, get them to sign up for your emails, get them to buy your first product and get them to, you know, it's very literal boots on the ground, kind of, you know, buy the numbers. It's not quite. And, and that's why I'm always interested to talk to you, Isaac, because I know you have more of this like branding agency background. Um, whereas I come from the, you know, very nuts and bolts, you know, make the sale, in right. the direct response world. And I think there's a lot of value in both, and there's value. You know, in these uh, worlds, talking to each other. So I don't, you know, I don't discount your world at all. But I certainly have my biases. Coming <laughs> no, and my, no, my, and,
0: and nor I would say that I'm probably much more in your camp, and I I have quite a bit more respect for what you do than what I do. And the the difference is, just so people understand what we're talking about, direct response response marketing is how would how would you characterize it. I don't want to say, I don't want to say it in a bad way. <laughs> so like, how would you characterize direct response, marketing? Well,
1: it, it just, so the, the most simple way is <clears throat> it directly makes the sale. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, when you see a Mercedes commercial uh, that's branded, you know, you're not gonna, most people aren't gonna like, you know, unless keep it a one-to-one comparison. Like, uh, you know, I was just on the Wall Street Journal website and there was an ad for Mercedes. Now, a lot of people click on that. I clicked on the ad. I wanted to see what the new Mercedes looked like. Um, But they're not going to then click to an order form and order a Mercedes. (laughs) So that's branding. Uh, Super valuable. You know, what they say, Apple's probably the most valuable brand in history. Um, But the difference with direct marketing, which you also might see on the uh, Wall Street Journal website, is... um, I'm trying to think of an example I've actually seen on the Wall Street Journal. Um, well, I get targeted ads for HubSpot because I use HubSpot. Um, so if you see an ad for HubSpot, you click on it, they want you to actually buy, or in my case, upgrade the software then and there. So that's that's the difference. And the, there's a lot of overlap. You know, there's big brands that have started with direct marketing and then as they get bigger, switch to branding. So, but yeah, it's just uh, kind of creating brand awareness versus, um, trying to make a direct sale.
0: Right. Yeah. So we're talking about the conversion end of the funnel. So that's, that's traditionally like the top of the funnel is awareness. The bottom of the funnel is conversion because the bottom of the funnel is the closest where you want the purchase to occur. So you're funneling them towards the action that they need to take. And if you think about this in the grocery store context, right? So like an awareness campaign for your green beans brand is you make the Jolly Green Giant and you post that on a billboard and everybody's like, Ooh, what's that thing? And then they get the Jolly Green Giant in their mind, right? So they're now aware of the Jolly Green Giant. The next step down on the funnel is uh, consideration. So that's when you, the, the way you would measure that, the way a McKinsey would measure that is when somebody walks into a grocery store, you ask them, what are the three green bean brands you're thinking about right now? That's a, a campaign that's a little bit further down the funnel would aim to get them to think, to consider it. Then and that usually just means being aware of it a certain number of times. The effective frequency, right? They used to say effective frequency was three times seeing an ad before you move on to consideration. Now it's seven. Right. So then then those preference campaigns that's a one step below. And that's basically the survey question. When you which brand are you green bean brand are you here to buy? Right. And there's various campaigns that are a little more geared towards that. And then finally you have conversion. And a conversion campaign is what you're saying, direct marketing is, and it's the most powerful piece of marketing that exists. And how do they, and what you're aiming for is to drive the sale. And so what brands do, since conversion is arguably the most important part, is they, a, a conversion campaign often involves coupons or or um, codes to get discounts right. and things like that. Because you, all you're doing is trying to drive that conversion, right? So why I have so much respect for what Pine Baron does is that in my world of the more brandy, fluffy stuff, it, there is so much bullshit. It is literally 98% bullshit because well, it's, it's, yeah. it's a lot harder to measure, right? Like it's even impossible to measure. Right. Yeah. 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 So right. It's impossible to measure. So that allows for so many middling, bureaucratic bug people to occupy these positions because there's no upshot there's no test they can just do this shit forever and it doesn't matter how good it is it can you know this is one part of why we're seeing the rise of woke marketing just because it doesn't matter what your super bowl ad says as long as people are seeing it then you've done your job right Whereas the type of marketing you do is much more guerrilla, much more in the trenches. You're judged. And I think you've actually told some great stories about how you're totally judged by performance and not, right? Which is the polar opposite from my world.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, it's a gift and a curse. I've, I've done well with it personally. Um, but even in my own career, it's this massive roller coaster of, you know, one month, I may have a smashing success um and then the next month i may have you know a terrible month (laughs) whereas i think in the branding world it's a little more steady you know these are more like w2 career jobs climb the corporate ladder so it's certainly a gift and a curse um and and i would say it's certainly a young man's game (laughs) as well you know as i get older and become more concerned about you know supporting a family and, and a legacy it's you know i i uh become more concerned about the roller coaster of uh you know income and i and i've taken a lot of steps you know i i I talk about this on my social media um taking a lot of steps like with investing in real estate and you know starting my own brand to to smooth out that that roller coaster. Um right. but let me defend your world for a minute. I appreciate <laughs> what you said about mine. I mean I when I was starting out, I was kind of a hater on the branding world. And I think I one thing I just got wrong is there's a huge barrier to entry to branding. So I was kind of a hater just because like I had I wasn't in the club. Yeah. <laughs> like branding is stupid without a huge budget. Um, it's just throwing money into a paper shut. Um, but yeah. if you do have a huge budget and you are working on a huge brand it can be an incredibly powerful tool and I think and maybe there's a little bit of a grass is greener thing for me but there's something very exciting of like my playing field has always been does the customer enter their credit card or not but you know you being in the branding world it's kind of this more abstract intellectual aesthetic playing field of like how does the person perceive this brand you know how can I shape their perception there's something kind of elegant and exciting about that to me, like a kind of a more sophisticated thing, but obviously there's a lot of problems with it as you highlighted, and problems with direct response too. So.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We're, we're really talking about the sort of polar opposites uh, of this, of this world. And, you know, I, I probably one end is all men. And the other end is like all women also, like my world (laughs) is probably 85% women. Um, It was the other day I went out to the bar with a friend of mine and it was like, I, it's in this part of LA Culver city at this one bar. That's known for advertising. People go there. i when I was, I've worked at agencies in Culver and hung out at this bar and it's insane how the population of an ad agency has changed. There was like a whole agency there when I was there. Um, And agencies used to be, you know, predominantly male, then maybe 50-50. Now it was a probably like, there was like maybe 25 of them there or maybe 20. It was like 15 diverse women and five dudes, maybe three dudes. And the two white dudes with beards were the executive creative directors. (laughs) So it's like, you literally have this situation where it's like, two white dudes at the very top who have somehow managed to hang on. And then everyone else at the entire company is a woman or diverse in some way. So it's like really wild how they're, they've just totally weeded out white men from the like middle part of these agencies.
1: Yeah. I mean, direct marketing is, is very different. I've, I've called it uh the used car sales world <laughs> and it does resemble used car sales demographically yeah. um it's you know uh generally you know I, I don't know so much about like religion or race per se but it's definitely like just aggressive men yeah it's, <laughs> it's aggressive so, dudes, right yeah, yeah right, right. whereas the other so, side's
0: so soft it's like it's like the softest yeah. thing
1: um anyway and i think <laughs> you know again i and I, you know, I I try to tread carefully on these issues. Of course. Not so much to avoid landmines, though there's part of that, but it's just like that that's not my bailiwick. Like I, you know, it's just like I know what I know, I know what I'm good at. There's there's people who are much better at commenting on that stuff than
0: than <laughs> yes. I am. Yes, pine barons so. uh my opinions do not reflect pine barons. <laughs> just uh, I'll say that. Um any and anyway, I'm not actually saying I'm not even saying I'm just observing. I'm just observing right, you're not how, making much, value just, how much this yeah. has changed, right? Um, anyway, so uh, let's let's move on a little bit uh, into what's going on in the news cycle right now, which is I, I love that people are picking up this story because I get the sense that the media doesn't want people to talk about this, but we're talking about it anyway. And the reason they don't want to talk about it is because we're, uh, this is the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 that I think just passed um, the Senate. And it is, there's one big part of it, and it, this is relevant to me and Pine Baron and anybody who is a small business owner, and I saw Pine Baron; you were tweeting about this. And I think that you're a good guy to talk about this because you're finance related, at least. And you know, you, you're you very knowledgeable about these things. So as part of the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, there is a tax enforcement provision that is more or less saying that we're going to beef up the IRS times te- times two. We're doubling the power of the IRS to audit um, more or less small businesses because We all know that the big guys are going to fight audits tooth and nail with expensive lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. So that's not a winning money proposition for them. So what all the analysts are saying is more or less this bill is spending 80 billion more dollars on the IRS because they think that by attacking the middle class or not attacking, but, but making the middle class pay back taxes that they may have missed or whatever, that they're going to raise 204 billion. And so, um, Pine Baron, what was your, you kind of had a tweet being like, look, we're not complaining about this because we don't want to pay taxes. We're complaining about it because we don't have the resources to fight this. If they come after us basically. Right. Or, Or can you just clarify what your point was?
1: Yeah. Well, this, um, this is a big topic and one I think I do know fairly well. So Thanks for giving me a soapbox for it. Um, let me just, before I dig into it, let me just make it like a quick transition from our earlier conversation. Yeah, totally, totally. Because um, this is something you and I uh, talked about off the, off air. Um, and I think it's a point worth making. So look, like I'm, I'm proud of a lot of the work I've done. Um, you know, I think kind of the reason there is a market for, you know, financial advice and investment education is like we do a pretty bad job of it. Like I didn't learn it from my parents. I didn't learn it from school. Um, so like there is like a real vacuum like for this kind of information. Um, but certainly, you know, I, I, I'm the first to admit it. it. It also allows in bad actors and perverse incentives. And one of the biggest problems with investment marketing is the stuff that's exciting from a marketing perspective Um is not necessarily a good investment and vice versa. Like if you try and sell people and this is part of why I'm so passionate about making my own content is like, I'm, I try really hard to be super honest. Like I have made my money by, um, you know, doing a a job that pays commissions and uh, some smart, you know, stock investing um, and owning local real estate. But it's just like, that's not exciting for a sales pitch, you know, like yeah. the last couple of years, if you were in financial marketing, you were selling crypto. Right. <laughs> and it's like yeah. Yeah. working for Coinbase would be pretty cool, you know, and and I worked on crypto marketing campaigns, but it's like, and, and, and I do all right in crypto. I mean, I, I think crypto, you know, still has some promise, but it, it just kind of sucks that like, if you're getting people excited about investing, you're like slamming them with like, you know, Get into this red hot tiny cryptocurrency, and it's like that's that's not really what I do with my own money. It's not what these people at these companies do with their own money. So it's like there's this tension between you know, hey, buy a duplex and you know rent it out for the next thirty years is just not as sexy as like you know buy a Elon Musk dogecoin you
0: know right so to clarify what you're saying just i'm right on the same page but just to make it like super simple for the audience what you're saying is that when you're marketing advice the product that you're marketing the advice that you're marketing may not always match up with the most sexy marketing, right? Because you yeah. want edgier advice, edgier, cooler, more new, newsworthy advice, even if that advice, because it's easier to market, even if that advice isn't the best advice, you know? So you're saying like, yeah, you could be saying, Hey, t- take these really basic, simple steps, but it's harder to get anybody to click on that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Good. Yeah. So, and that's part of why I've transitioned in, into doing my own stuff is, because I, you know, if, if I'm working for a big company, you know, they have to sell tens of millions of dollars worth, of, you know, whether it's make an account with a crypto brokerage or buy this uh, training course that teaches you how to trade. Um, they have to sell a lot to move the needle, but it's like, if it's a much smaller, leaner company, it's like I can do well for myself without having to sell, you know, tens of millions of dollars where I can still do well for myself so I can, you know, promote stuff that's not like as attention getting, like I, I don't need to do 20 million in sales. Right. So yeah. I can be like, Hey, you know, yeah, crypto's cool. And yeah, I think there's some opportunities in crypto, but also like consider buying a duplex, you know, right. the, the more boring stuff that I, I truly believe in has been part of my own wealth building journey. Right. Totally. so, yeah, I just
0: I know that's a big segue, but we had talked about that off air, so I want no, to no, that totally, totally. I think the way that we're segueing to this yeah. is that um you know it, it, in the same way, you're building a small business, right? And so we know that people who are building small businesses are middle class, upper middle class. They're the people who really the American dream was built for, right? We all want freedom at least, that's kind of the idea. We want the freedom to be able to build the things we want to build ourselves. But, um, and the way we want to build it, which is what you're saying, you don't want to necessarily be bound to the necessity of doing things for large corporations or just that that maximize, uh, you know, that absolutely maximize profits at all times.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, let, let me just interject here, Isaac. I had a tweet the other day um where i said one of the one of the best things about owning your own business is you can deliberately make bad business yes, decisions yes yes and right. i yeah i uh i had a family member who got laid off um and i hired him for my business and like from a pure like if i had lots of investors or a share price to worry about i couldn't justify it you know it wasn't like the most economically advantageous move but it's like i felt really good about it. Because it's like, geez, why why else am I trying to build, you know, build some wealth and some influence if not to take care of my family, you know? Yeah. So right. that's that's exactly what you were getting at, I think.
0: Right. So as somebody who's doing that, what are your what's your take on this inflation reduction act of twenty twenty two tax provision?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I think you made this point. Like, yeah, it's such an Orwellian name. <laughs> we're gonna spend eight hundred million dollars or, you know, billions, I guess. Yeah, it's billions, 80 billion. Uh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. yeah, $80 billion uh, to reduce inflation. I mean, even a elementary understanding of economics is just like the most perverse naming convention. Yeah, um, right. So you're doomed from the start. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, specifically about the IRS enforcement. So um, the other thing I've been talking about that we referenced is... You know, full-blown fraud is fairly rare. You know, I know a lot of small business owners. I know a lot of real estate investors. The vast majority of them are not, you know, trying to commit full-blown fraud, like the guys who took the COVID stimulus money and fled to Europe. Right. Like That's fairly rare. And no one's defending that. I'm not defending that. Um, the problem is just complying, like trying to make a good faith effort to comply is so demanding of time and money. That's a problem. Like no one no one I know is trying to defraud the IRS. They're just trying to like put food on the table and keep running their business. And yet they have to hire lawyers, hire accounts, spend their own time and energy just complying with this really Byzantine, broken system. So that's a problem. It's like no one, you know this this guy on Twitter went went viral um, because, you know, he's like, just tell the truth. It's not a problem. It's like, actually, it's a huge problem. Yeah. Like I take great pains to tell the truth. I report all my income. I'm, um, you know, I'm fairly conservative about my taxes because to be blunt, it stresses me the hell out and I want to be able to sleep at night. But even like with hiring accountants and lawyers and really trying to do, do my, uh,
0: do my dandest, tell the truth. It's a huge burden on me
1: as a small business owner.
0: Totally, I, and and that's yeah. what people. No one, anybody who is criticizing this has not run a small business because anybody who has run a small business, I also have a, a, an accountant, very professional accountant now, who's great. But it's it's not just like, and he sees everything, does everything above board. But there's still hours and hours and hours of discussions that go on yeah. about where we categorize this, where you put this, what, and the thing is, it's not black and white. The, the law doesn't say oh, uh, if you are a marketing creative professional and you spent $17 on a margarita in Miami for this thing, that's definitely not right. alphable. It's not like that. You're being asked to make decisions based on the rules as they're written. And you make those decisions as, as well as you can, right? And the IRS can audit you whether or not you got that stuff right or you didn't. You know, the the IRS, it's not like the IRS can, it, it's like they're 100% only going after bad actors. What they're saying in this is they're basically doing this for money. They're not doing it to crack down on bad a- actors. They're doing it because they need money. So what are they going to do? They're going to crack down on all these small businesses making less than $400,000 a year. And they're going to hassle us. They're going to, you know, audit us for all sorts of little things that we've tried our best to avoid but inevitably we're gonna have run up against things. And you know what? The IRS can audit you even if the IRS is wrong. They might be right. probably gonna be wrong in how many of these cases. And we don't get paid back, right? I mean, as far as I know, if you're audited, you don't get paid back for all the bullshit you have to go through, do you? Well, and the the literal money you have to pay. I mean, right. you have to yeah. pay an accountant.
1: Yeah. yeah, so it's, yeah, no, this, this guy who was trying to defend it, he was a CPA. And you know, it's, it's insane. It's like, it's kind of like stupid or liar territory. Yeah. And the guy obviously wasn't stupid. He was smart. He was well-spoken. So it's like, yeah, I guess you're in favor of this because it's good business for your yeah, tax. Right, right. It's actually going to be great for CPAs. You're <laughs> but, right. That's yeah, it just, and everyone was, uh, you know, kind of attacking him, I think with good reason, because it was just so cynical. And I think, I think a pretty big branding failure. I mean, there's such a layup there. If you're a CPA to be like, Hey, you know, the government's about to make things a lot harder for small business owners. I'm on your side. I want to help, you know, go to my website. It's like, I want to, you know, I want to, it's like, it's such a layup branding wise, like, but to put yourself on the side of the IRS there, it's like, Oh my gosh, what are you thinking?
0: Yeah no it's 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 also it, right you it's a great point that that it's good business for cpas but it's also just terrifying because we're just seeing time and again they're saying this is a cost benefit analysis right so they know if this is cost benefit analysis there was a vote for example to make sure that the people making less than 400k a year were cushioned from this they just did a vote and it failed of course Because the Dems voted, you know, enough Dems voted against it for it to fail because they're all paid off by the private equity groups. And they know that the only way this is going to work is if they make it all about people making less than 400 k Because what happens when you audit a rich private equity guy? That guy pays a couple million bucks and fights you every step of the way. You don't make money on that. That's a losing proposition. Even if you win a few of those, you're still going to lose money. You know, whereas if you go after a bunch of people, small business owners who don't have the time or the money to fight you, then you're going to make all that money. At least that's their idea. So there's no way they could allow this to protect the middle class because this is actually designed to attack the middle class in, in a way, or at least siphon money from them. But the question is, <coughs> sorry, the question is, is this actually going to work? Like, will this, these, however many new IRS people, will they actually be able to get 204 more billion, you know, making a prop, like, you know, doubling their investment or tripling their investment about, will that actually work? And so this accountant in LA, who I love, Bruce Bieloski, uh, wrote a thing about this today. And he says the following about dealing with the IRS. He says, The first element of this bill's increased revenues has to do with money flowing in from audits because of new hires at the irs this is an agency that cannot even answer their phones this is an agency that cannot even process their tax returns the current estimate is they are 20 million behind but who really knows i believe they have finally processed all the 2020 tax returns and are now digging into the 2020 ones this is an agency that is currently auditing a client of mine and they have, they're have they having a problem because neither the computer of the auditor nor his supervisor can read a thumb drive. They cannot read any thumb drives. So what he's trying to say is this guy's in the trenches. The IRS is a fucking nightmare. It, they're just like dealing with any other part of the federal government, like Fed loan servicing or whatever touch points you may have. Nothing works. <laughs> so the idea that adding... 80 billion dollars worth of new auditors is going to magically make 204 billion dollars appear is just totally wrong like they're well, going to end me, up spending more they're going to end up spending more as you said spending yeah. 80 billion dollars to fight inflation is insane
1: yeah well and let me um yeah i mean i i agree so strongly with everything you're saying um and let me make a point too it's like so i'm I uh, know I know a guy, a great guy who is an ex IRS auditor. Um, and like I want to be really clear, like this is a massive systemic problem. Like I don't look, I used to be super broke. Um, I would have killed for a good you know government job with a pension and health insurance. So like I'm not attacking any individual IRS people who like like I know someone who's who's a great guy. And he's, you know, he's the only person who gets even more angry than I do when you talk about it, because he was in the belly of the beast. And, you know, it's like, this is a big picture structural disaster. So like, I want to be very clear, because I I generally mean this, like, I know these are mostly good, hardworking people, you know, who just wanted a a steady job with good benefits. So it's like, I'm not going out now, I'm sure some of them are awful people, but in general, like this isn't about like attacking people who work there. It's like, I, I don't really fault them. It's just, it's this system is so corrupt and bloated and so many perverse incentives. That's it, it's just this massive structural problem.
0: Yeah. Well, and you're right. You're basically public employees. This is why this is like such a recipe for just a total bureaucratic nightmare because you're right. It's they don't have the incentives to make this work. They're not going to attack this problem like a bunch of hungry Silicon Valley people. Right. You know, what I mean like yeah, sure, some of these people are great, but the vast majority of these people are government bureaucrats. I mean, they're basically DMV workers. I mean, I'm not, you know, of course these people are higher quality than your average DMV worker because they have to do taxes, but that many people without the incentive to make this work, you have the classic, um, you know, problem of stakeholders versus representatives. It's like, they don't care actually how much money they're going to get out of this. They don't need it to be efficient. So there's just no way this is going to raise the amount of money that they want. It's like, it's just going to end up being really, really annoying. They're all going to try and cut costs in various ways. They're going to try and automate it. So you're going to be being like audited by a machine that you can't talk to and nothing's going to work. The the positive of this, though, I believe is and, and I've really tangled with the federal government before, like in a really profound way. And the key to overcoming these sorts of things is using that bureaucratic cost cutting disastrousness to your to your benefit. So if you simply. Complain every step of the way. Like whenever you begin, whenever you begin getting audited, or whatever you begin getting, whatever is happening, there will be all these ap- appealing mechanisms and ways to request documents and all this stuff. I'm sure anybody with a good accountant knows this already. But once all this starts happening, the key, if you don't have a good accountant, is going to be to just request documents appeal, contest, ask for special hearings, just repeatedly hammer them. Because every time you do that, you're raising the cost, you're raising the cost, you're raising the cost. And again, they've outwardly stated that they're trying to make money off of this.
1: Well, so I do. Lot, you know, Sorry. I, I mean, I, I like that in principle, Isaac, right? I do have to push back a little bit. <laughs> okay. Because again, the problem is, yeah, this is such an anti middle class system, right? Nice. Because the very wealthy people, they're the reason it's so bloated, yeah, right? They're yeah. the because of all the weird exemptions and loopholes, and they benefit enormously from this Byzantine contradictory system. So it's good for the very wealthy and then the 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 poor. Don't have to
0: pay shit. Don't interact. Yeah, they don't. Yeah,
1: Taxes. Poor people don't do taxes. They don't interact with the system. Forty-nine percent of the
0: people in the country pay no taxes from being too poor, right? Fifty percent. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Something like
1: that. And I think a surprisingly high number of them don't even file taxes. (laughs) But it's but it's not really worth it to go after them. There's nothing to go after. So, you know, it just kind of is what it is. So it's just it's such an anti-middle class and you know even upper middle class po- policy but it's just kind of like the, the guys who make the country work right 60 percent of all americans are employed by people like me and you like small business owners so it's like we're kind of the the people who keep the lights on and, and we're getting a bum deal yeah. i feel like i'm running for office but yeah <laughs> I, mean, I mean it <laughs> i mean it yeah so it's it's so but the to what you were saying it's like I'm trying to run my business. Like I don't have time to, you know, go to hearings and file paperwork. And yeah, I don't really, I don't have a budget to pay a a account, you know, a ton of money to do that stuff on my behalf. So it's like, I, you know, I I don't want to play a, an outlasting game with the government who does have unlimited time and money.
0: Right. I mean, no, you might not be able to outlast them. I just mean like, you know, I think part of the reason why the um the loan stuff is failing, why they're starting to realize that they just need to get these federal loans off the books and that they're just absolute toxic waste, is because the cost to service them is more than they make on them. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you have all these people who are not answering the phone. They're avoiding it. You know, there's however, like what, $2 trillion in student loan debt. And it's all that's just maybe federal. And it's all, uh, you know, that's unlike taxes where the people who can't afford it just don't interact. As you're saying, the federal government's trying to like make contact with these uh, debtors who are, you know, have gone to university for like one quarter, you know, or like one semester. And it just is totally, it's just not workable. They, They can't get the money from these people effectively. So That's why those loans are looking like they might just get written off because it's not, they like hired a analyst to come and look at them. And he were like, these are, they're looking at them as an asset, right?
1: And they're actually Uh, a liability.
0: When it's actually a massive liability. And that's what they're doing with this too. They're being like, oh yeah, hey, you know what? We've got some uh, CBO office people that are saying, well, if we can raise a, a clean $160 billion from back taxes, then we're good. But that's not going to happen. <laughs> they're just going to spend this $80 billion and it's going to end up costing, you know, then it's not going to work how they said it is. They're going to need more employees. A bunch of people are going to leave. Nobody's going to pay the taxes they're supposed to pay. So it's, you know, it's just going to end up being another giant fail by them. So, I guess all I'm saying that is like in mass, if they're gonna start fucking with the middle class, it's our responsibility to be like, no, you know, don't fuck with us. Like we're gonna challenge you back,
1: yeah, I mean, i'm I'm glad we could kind of rant about this. yeah and I, I think we see we see eye to eye completely. um, but then it kind of so it it naturally begs the question of, all right, here's the playing field. Now what? And that's kind of what I'm really interested in right now, and and why uh, I'm I'm writing and doing podcasts and and making my own content is like, uh, it's a really important problem to me in my own life. You know, trying to uh, raise a family uh, and, and and you know achieve something meaningful. But I also think it's you know it's an increasingly big problem for everyone else because unfortunately, I don't think being on the sidelines is an option because the middle class is getting eaten away at. And there's so many statistics you could point to, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, wage stagnation versus inflation or, you know, the the collapse of the nuclear family or the, you know, um, all the wealth concentration in the hand of boomers or, you know, just wealth inequality in general. So it's like there's there's so many things you can point to about like the shrinking middle class. And it's like I don't, you know, liberal, conservative, progressive, reactionary, like I don't think anyone disagrees about that. So like then the very important question becomes what now?
0: Well, so what now? What's, what's your <laughs> what's your advice? I thought you'd never ask, guys. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no. Thanks for uh giving me the punchline there. So I mean, I don't want to get too, like, philosophical or abstract. Um, I do believe in institutions. I just don't believe in the people
0: running our current ones. <laughs>
1: so, you know, one, one natural reaction is, like, anarchism. You know, the hardcore libertarians, the anarchists, like, our institutions aren't doing a good job. Um, so there should be no institutions. Um, and I, I don't agree with that. I mean, yeah. you know. If you want to live somewhere with no institutions, you know, Mogadishu's a <laughs> 12-hour flight away, you know? Yeah, right. So, and, you know, we uh, America has had great periods of prosperity uh, with really well-run institutions that have achieved amazing things. And I, I think that's still in our national DNA. I think it's still possible. So I'm not giving up on the political process or anything, um but there's not that much i can do uh to affect that so yeah i mean it's kind of like i believe you just you have to become your own institution your own micro institution find like-minded people live in a like-minded community um you know i don't mean like move into the deep woods i mean you know move somewhere where people see eye to eye with you where you know maybe taxes are lower regulations aren't as bad and- I mean, this is exactly what I'm doing in my own life. You know, buy up real estate, start businesses, hire people, you know, pay your taxes. Don't, you know, I'm not saying do anything crazy or radical uh, because I think that's not just it unwise, it's extremely self-defeating because right. you'll just set yourself up for failure. So I, yeah, be, become a business owner, become an, an asset owner. And it doesn't mean you have to like quit your job if you have a good job. It means that you need to start seriously thinking about, you know, buying smart investments, buying real estate partner, you know, you can always partner with, a, you know, one of the few good things I think the federal government's done recently is uh, the regulation, a legislation, which makes it a lot easier for regular people to invest in uh, private companies. So, you know, you used to have to prove that you were a millionaire basically if you wanted to like invest in an apartment building in your own community, which is so insane. It's like you could invest in some crypto scam or some like Chinese yeah, right, penny stock, right, right. but like uh, someone wants to build an apartment building in your neighborhood where you probably do understand the value. You can't invest in that. So um, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of regulation A, uh, which lets people do that. And um, yeah, so I know I've kind of been ranting and raving, but no, no. yeah, Basically, my position is the American dream is not dead. It's it's under attack. But, you know, I'm living proof that you can still pull it off. So uh, but you do have to do something like you can't just keep working your W2 regular job and hope that things are going to get better. Like you, you got to become an owner.
0: Yeah, it does seem like that to me as well. It seems like, you know, I was I was kind of reaching a I mean, I could have gone much farther but i was a creative director at an agency and you know i was i was starting to see the top of my industry yeah and you know it's cushy but it really does seem like with things the way they are now with inflation the way it is now it doesn't make sense to be on the grind unless you're really headed to like you know, unless you're a lawyer on the partnership track, and you're gonna one day get, you know, half a million dollars a year or more plus some part of the business, you know, if you're unless you're on a track where you're really going to get equity in a business at some point, it doesn't really make much sense to be a worker. I think that that stage is kind of over like it seems like uh now everybody who is anybody is now works for themselves because it's just so easy to work for yourself now also um you don't need an office to go into so yeah i do sort of agree that when you're looking at the the things the way they are now you really do need to to kind of peel off for yourself although maybe this thing, maybe this this IRS thing is telling us, oh, no, they want you to go work for a company again, so you never have to worry about it. Yeah, well, let me, I mean, I, I largely agree with that. I mean, the funny
1: thing is, is as aggressive as I've been with my own life and, and, and my investments, that they're, they're actually an odd mix of aggressive and very conservative, right? So I worked, uh, you know, a corporate job for many years. It was, uh, it was stressful. There was a lot about it. I hated, but you know, I made good money and I learned valuable skills. So I'm not like, I'm not telling anyone listening to this. Like, I'm not telling anyone quit your job tomorrow. It's like, and in fact, you may never need to quit your job. Like for me, it's about ownership. You know, it's about, you know, if you have a decent day job, like it's not a bad thing to hold on to it. But what you have to make sure is you're taking the proceeds from that day job and using it to, to buy good investments, to buy, you know, whether it's dividend stocks or cash flow in real estate or a piece of a private business in your own community. So because cause it is hard out there and, and I've seen people fail, you know, trying to go off on their own. So and and, you know, I, I didn't quit until I, you know, had multiple opportunities lined up. Um, and I'm in this amazing position now where, uh, I can basically cover my bills from my, my real estate rentals. So that's like this amazing, uh, position when I was broke. It's like, I would have never thought this was even possible, but, uh, this pretty, it's like, as now it's not perfectly economically secure. You can envision lots of disasters, but it's this amazing position where, um, I know my bills are paid pretty much no matter what and rents keep pace with inflation. So, yeah. You know, uh, which, which uh, W2 salaries have not.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no. Right. And that's why we, you know, own capital. That's what, yeah. Yeah, that's what we want to do. Um, Okay. Let's close this out by talking just quickly about the recession, which we're basically talking about already. So yeah. um, a couple of weeks ago, as it began to appear that the GDP would have, two consecutive quarters of decline, the Biden administration began rejecting this traditional definition of recessions. So that was, they, in various ways, the Biden administration basically came out and said, nope, nope, we're not having a recession. It's pure 1984 because it's like editing the truth, editing reality to comply with your government's desires. So before that, Uh, GDP, or sorry, recessions had been defined as GDP declining for two consecutive quarters. That then led to this uh, uproar on Wikipedia, where everybody was trying to edit it back and forth. Wikipedia actually ended up keeping the two quarters definition above the fold, which is what the argument was over, because pro-Biden people were trying to edit it, and then anti-Biden people were trying to edit it back. So, right now, it actually is the proper definition, although it's a little bit garbled um so I guess my question for you is, are we in a recession despite what the Biden administration is saying?
1: Yeah, of course, we're in a recession, <laughs> and you know talk to any normal human i mean that's that's again why I like being in real estate is it kind of gets me out of the corporate bubble like i'm I'm always talking to you know drywallers and roofers and plumbers and electricians. So, you know, just just talk to real humans, not, you know, government bureaucrats. So now, is it a, a bad recession? Is it a depression? Is it comparable to 08? You know, that, that all remains to be seen. But, you know, if you just if you look at, I mean, recently, we had a quote, unquote, good jobs report. But if you actually broke down the numbers, the vast majority of jobs added to the economy were part-time, you know, or people who were already full-time employed taking on additional work. So, and then obviously all of these statistics are insanely manipulated, you know, yeah. The what the unemployment rate, according to the government means, is like, it's some bizarre formula about like, if you applied for a job within the last four weeks and then blah, 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 you know, it's some paperwork thing but it only vaguely reflects the reality of how many people are actually in the workforce
0: right so, so we we are in a recession so does does saying we're not in a recession do anything about this because i guess the argument is actually it's good to not say it because then people won't panic and we'll it'll be a softer recession yeah I, that's an interesting case Um.
1: I'm considering it as you say it. i I don't reject that wholesale. I mean, so much of economic conditions does live in the mind of the public, and uh, that doesn't make it any less real. Um, so yeah, if you wanted to defend what they're doing, that that is an interesting defense, one that i I don't entirely reject. Um, I mean, one of the bad things about it is just like the the meta natures, it gets us arguing about definitions. Instead of like working on solutions, you know, once you admit that we're in a recession, we can talk about, hey, maybe let's actually go easier on taxes for middle class people and small business owners. Or maybe let's uh, not, you know, absolutely loot the treasury and send it to Eastern European arms dealers. You know, maybe that's not the best thing to do right now if we're in a recession. Right. So... Um, And, you know, that I I don't even I don't want to get into Ukraine except as like a, you know, just an example. But it's like it's not a defense of Putin to say that, like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be funneling, you know, hundreds of billions of which only 30 percent we can account for into a war zone, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, it's 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 uh it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think uh, the best advice is what you said, which is just to try and uh, make it on your own, build your own pieces of capital, whether or not those are companies or real estate or whatever it is. Um, uh, and let me let me be clear, I don't think you should
1: try and make it on your own. I think uh, I said micro institutions, which is it's not great branding. You know, talking to a guy who is a very good brander, but yeah. it's like work and and this again is i'm putting my money where my mouth is like uh do business with your brother or sister do business with your parents do business with your neighbors you know i have a a main business partner in most of my ventures you know find like-minded people like i'm not saying you know i the last thing i want people to do is like you know go become a monk in a cave somewhere yeah it's like no like get married have kids make good friendships you know it's like you gotta, we gotta rebuild kind of these institutions for ourselves. So definitely don't go it alone, but like find partnerships with friends and 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 neighbors and coworkers and and family members. That that's what I'm really advocating for.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, it's we need to build uh, our own institutions, or at least institutions that. Um, operate on a local level, it sounds like you're saying also, yeah, you know, hiring your friends, hiring people in your network, and trying to drum this stuff up ourselves. And I think that uh, that is where things are going. That is where things are headed. I think there's a certain amount of resistance to that. You know, there's the neat class of people that we deal with. There's the incel class of people that we deal with. And I think both of them are really stuck in this kind of beautiful ones type existence. And I feel like a lot of them view people like you and people like me sometimes with suspicion because we're out here in the world actually interacting with the darkness, right? We're fighting the fight. We're like actually interacting with these institutions that are so broken because we're trying to build our own things. And what I'm hoping is that the more that we can record podcasts like this, and hopefully the more people can sign up for um stuff like you're offering uh they those those men those guys who feel so disenfranchised will f- have the confidence to step up and build their own stuff and and work with um their friends to build stuff and their families like you're saying i think that's great advice and that's totally where we should go yeah. Thanks, Isaac. And it's it's almost like,
1: you know, what's the great uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle thing? It's like, when you've eliminated um, all the impossible options, the one that remains, no matter how improbable, must be the answer. It's like, what else can you do? It's like, well, I, you can't fight City Hall. It's like, I can't, there's nothing I can do about the IRS. You know, I'm going to yes. pay my taxes, I'm going to deal with it. You know, um, but you're also like, it it's like any kind of uh I see like I don't even know how to talk about it. like any kind of insane like January sixth, we're gonna take over the capital. It's like that's utterly insane too. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, what does that buy you? What what is the end of that look like? Buys you absolutely so,
0: nothing. And that's I mean that yeah, I think it's um also I think what you're trying to say is also when you when you keep your mind on your money a little bit, uh and when you try and build these profitable connections in your life you it forces you out of the distraction political 24 7 yeah click fest and i think that that you know as the generation below us grows up i i think that's going to be important for them to to realize to get out of their houses and stop um yeah, I mean, right. What What is January 6th going to give you? All, all they did was give uh, the globalists exactly what they wanted, you know, and, and that didn't that didn't help anything at all. What they're much, much more scared of is for you to build a business that they can't touch. That's what they're a lot more afraid of, as we can see, because now they're funding a bunch of bureaucrats to come mess with us. Yeah. And I
1: mean, uh, I, th- I think in some ways people don't realize how bad things are like you and I do, because like we're in the trenches, like you said. But the, the flip side is people don't also realize how good things are. Like you said, if you unplug, if you have a great relationship, a great marriage, a great friend, great friends. I mean, you know, America is still one of the most beautiful. It still contains some of those beautiful places on Earth. You still can make a great living here. Um, you know, there, there's so many opportunities if you're ready to go out and take them. Now, the problem is, and what breaks my heart is, you know, the post-war prosperity of the fifties and sixties, that's no longer around. Like I, I do feel like in, in that era, you could just show up, punch a clock, have a good life that I don't think that's true anymore, but if you're willing to go out, get after it, I think it's still true. And, and again, I think people like you and me are living proof of that.
0: Yeah, Totally. Um cool. Well, thank you so much Pine Baron. Um you can find Pine Baron at what's the we- Wealthpin website?
1: Yeah, wealthpin.com, uh sign up.wealthpin.com for the email newsletter and Why Wealthpin by the way? Uh well, <laughs> maybe you tell me. I just I thought it was a good brand for a website where we write about investing and uh you know, real estate and stocks and and all so but it's it's just a yeah pin p-i-n pin okay
0: uh yeah no i like it i like it i think it's good i I think i like the uh the logo too i think it's great um cool all right well yeah so check them out there anywhere else to send people
1: yeah um at spirit of pines is is my twitter account but just yeah check out the wealth pin stuff i'm just like i said i'm really trying to share like the real nitty-gritty stuff that works for me and just you know, share the kind of stuff about investing and wealth creation that I wish I had access to when I was younger and, you know, really like no bullshit way, just like lay out the real facts of, um, you know, how we're making money, how we intend to keep making money and, uh, you know, call
0: out a lot of the bullshit out there. Yeah, totally. No, I, I think you're a great voice of of reason and, you know, practicality. And I, I want, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping more people can, Join um, the sort of groups that you're setting up, just because they're pragmatic, they're actionable, they're exi- is existing in the world instead of completely sealed off uh, from everything. Uh, which I think is, you know, like you've done a good job of remaining anon, right? You're so all these people saying, "Oh, I'm afraid of not being of being uh, doxed." You've remained anon, but you're still making money you're still running a business and so i think uh when it comes to freedom that's really the best you can do and and there's no reason for people to be so afraid yeah well thanks thanks for all that isaac
1: and and again it's like whatever i've said on twitter I, I like to think that it's you know had a good impact and especially helped young guys who are struggling because that's that was me and i kind of <laughs> tailor my content towards that but it's like <clears throat> probably nothing i've ever done online has as much impact as like when I buy a, an old house in my neighborhood and fix it up and I hire local people who, who I know like friends and neighbors. I mean, my electrician who I give a ton of business to is my neighbor. And then yeah. like we fix up an old house and make it a really nice place to live in and, you know, rent it to a family who wants to go to a certain school. It's like that stuff. I'm, I'm so proud of. Cause like, it, it's so real, you know, people talk shit about landlords, but it's like, that's cause they're morons. They don't understand. And, and obviously, I'm not, you know, BlackRock's a whole nother thing, but local mom and pop landlords like me, it's like, I'm so proud of that work. Um, yeah. You know, I'm hiring people. I'm making my own community more beautiful. Um, you know, it's just and that's the kind of stuff that if we do, you know, if everyone starts doing, the country starts looking a whole lot better real quick.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, we'll we'll have to save the landlord discussion for another time. But yeah, I, uh, I, I, it's important, right? It's important to distinguish the types of landlords. Um, okay, cool, man. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, yeah, and and have a good one. We'll we'll speak later. Thank you. All right, man. Bye.